Shut up and sit down. Hello, new friends. Welcome to the first episode of the Sixth Ring, Rolling in Rokugan. I'm your incredibly excited, over-enthusiastic, hyper-caffeinated host, Alex Jacobs. And with me is my brilliant, intelligent, charming, and ruggedly handsome co-host, Ian McDougall. Say hello, Ian. Hi, Alex. I gotta tell you, you need to do my introductions more often, because that was fantastic. Uh, I I am flattered and honored by that. I'm doing my best to channel Mel Palmer here. So... (laughs) To those of you who are new to The Sixth Ring, uh, The Sixth Ring was originally an LC, um, well, it was originally a streaming f- service for the Legend of the Five Rings, uh, collectible card game from AEG. Uh, they do streaming now for the C, for the LCG by Fantasy Flight Games. And they also have a great podcast, uh, all about the card game. But Mel has asked us to start this new podcast about the RPG. So we're gonna, he- we're, we, we've got a whole list of guests lined up, uh, people we want to talk to. Really just people we can geek out about everything we love about the system. People doing uh, – running campaigns, people doing new and exciting things with it and anything that would get you uh, – we think you'd be interested in hearing about. Ian, is there anything that you're looking forward to talking about with this podcast? I think one of the best things about this podcast is that we can really drill into um, the, um, the the RPG mechanics, the, the new edition that's just come out with Fantasy Flight. We can talk about the history of it. Um, th- this is such not just a rich uh, setting, but a, a rich um, history uh, with the role playing game going through four editions now, and and, and it's, it's been very much like D anD D in that it's evolved from a, a very um, a very old-fashioned system to a very modern system, and uh, and, and that transition has a, a rich history to it. I'm really looking forward to diving into it. Uh, you've got you've got quite a history with this game. Um, for those of us who and the setting, well, let me start that again. I'm going to edit this part out. Okay. Uh, you've got quite a history uh, with L5R. For those of our listeners who have, don't have the pleasure of having met you personally yet, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, absolutely. So I got started uh, with Legend of the Five Rings, um, I think about 11 or 12 years ago. Uh, I was uh, at a party where I didn't really know a lot of people, and this one guy sat me down and heard that I uh, very much enjoyed LARPing, uh, which is live-action role-playing, for those of you who don't know. Um, and he said, well, do you do any LARPing and I, uh, here? And I said, no, I've only done it at Gen Con before. And he said, well, I'm involved in this LARP for Legend of the Five Rings. And I was literally entranced all evening long as he described it to me. And so I went. And uh, that was my beginning into Legend of the Five Rings about 12 years ago. They used the um, the AEG published LARP rules, which were designed purely for one-shots and really weren't designed that well for that either. Um, and really just ran with it uh, with this huge campaign that lasted, I think, five years. Um, from there, I got involved into the actual uh, tabletop RPG uh, and eventually uh, was involved in running my own Legend of the Five Rings LARP, which uh, ran for five, uh, for three years. And, um, and for that, we sort of 
did a homegrown system taking the fourth edition rules and adapting them uh, to uh, to a LARP setting. And I got to admit, we didn't do the best job with it. If I could go back and redo it after having been gone through it for three years, I would change almost every single rule that I originally wrote. But that's the whole point of edition changes anyway. Um, and uh, it was a lot of fun. It's how I got to meet Alex through that uh, through that LARP, and uh, we've uh, uh, we've been enjoying uh, playing the tabletop and LARPing together basically ever since. That that is fantastic. So I, I think a lot of people are familiar with L5R as a tabletop RPG, not necessarily a LARP. Um, what would you say are some of the differences between the LARP and the tabletop, and how does that affect what you love about the game? Well, actually, one of the things I do love about L5R is because the differences between the LARP and the tabletop are uh, are much more minimal than I think you would find in uh, in a lot of uh, other games. Um, I, I don't know that there's too many D&D LARPs. I don't think there's too many um, – Pathfinder LARPs or things of that nature. There are vampire LARPs, but the vampire rules are exceptionally different uh, for LARP than they are for um, the tabletop game, for example. I'm not even sure if they're using uh, the same publishing group for the rules. Um, but with, with LARP for L5R, one of the fantastic things about it is that the tabletop game is already so enriched in a rich a setting and a rich culture that people love role-playing over the table. It's not just, I want to roll to see if I can convince them to do things. Things, they're already, you know, having the conversation, and that's exactly what you get in the LARP, uh, because in the LARP we basically discourage mechanics unless you need to do some sort of conflict, uh, and everything should be uh, done through uh, through conversation, through role playing, uh, and staying deep into your character uh, the entire time. Uh, and uh, and I find that in the tabletop you get that very frequently as well. So it's really, I think, one of the closest links between LARP and tabletop that there is in gaming right now. Yeah, I think that gives a very unique perspective because you don't get those same crossovers with a lot of other games. But I know when we go to Gen Con and we play the Heroes of Rokugan events, uh, like you'll, it, everybody who is there for the tabletop events is also staying for the interactive, what, which is what they call their LARP, and vice versa. Yes, the Heroes of Rokugan Interactive, which I know we're going to be talking about later with some of our guests, um, is uh, it, it really uh, encapsulates uh, exactly how the tabletop and the LARP mesh together because they don't have any specific LARP rules uh, for their interactives. They just say, uh, for everything you need to do, uh, do it through role play. And if you need to pull out the books and do mechanics, you'll do that, but we discourage it. And it works exceptionally well. And you see people who have never LARPed ever doing a great job standing up in front of their clan and and, and really you know, uh, acting as a true samurai should. And, and it's fantastic to see. Uh, I agree. And I, I can't wait to geek out about that with our guests in a couple of minutes. Uh, I also just want to talk a little bit about my own experience. Um, for those of you who, uh, who don't know me, first off, go back and listen to episode 17 of The Sixth Ring, the original podcast, uh, when I get to talk about the card game. Uh, but I got my start with L5R through academia. I actually wrote a paper about it for my Japanese literature course in college. And then I also got involved in my college's LARP. Uh, they ran a year-long weekly LARP for L5R. Uh, after I graduated, I got into the card game. And then when I moved back to Philadelphia, uh, that same gentleman who, who lured you into L5R uh, found me on the AG forums and invited me to come down for that long-running uh, five-year LARP you were talking about. And uh, for those of you who – if it seems like we're being a little coy, we're talking about a gentleman named Peter Smiley. And I'm hoping we'll get him on as a guest at some point in the future. 
That'd be fantastic. He both helped run that five-year LARP, and he uh, was the uh, one of the uh, the co-storytellers for the three-year LARP that I ran. In addition to that, and I should have pointed out that I've done as well, both Peter and I uh, were the authors of several of um, the uh, HOR3 uh, interactives uh, in the early part of that campaign. Oh, I didn't realize um, that you co-written those with them. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did uh, for uh, for I would say the first year and a half, maybe two years. All right, that's that's pretty cool. See, I'm learning things already, and I'm forgetting things that I've done. <laughs> we're we're all getting older these days. All right. Uh, well, after I got involved with uh, city of with the city of stories LARP, um, Peter also lured me into Heroes of Rokugan, and then uh, when FFG acquired the license to. Uh, the card to the card game. I started playing that as well. Did pretty well there. Um, currently writing for Heroes of Rokugan. Uh, had a couple mods, and now I've got this podcast. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. I think this is going to be a great opportunity both to to geek out with you about uh, the the wonders of Rokugan and the wonders of the uh, RPG, and uh, and also a way to just sort of share our love of both the setting and the system uh, with uh, with all of our listeners. I'm really excited about this. Well, let's not not waste any more time. We're going to take a brief break, and then we're going to be back with our guests. Stay classy, Rokugan. See you in a few minutes. Welcome back, new friends. Uh, This is Rolling in Rokugan, and we are now joined by our wonderful, illustrious guests, uh, Chris Ward and Corey Mills. Say hello, guys. Hey, guys. Hello, guys. Hi. It's nice to have you guys here. So for those of uh, our our listeners who don't yet know you, well, you're going to have a wonderful introduction, but why don't you tell them about yourselves? Chris, why don't you go first? Sure. Uh, So I have been playing uh, Legend of the Five Rings uh, since uh, 2008. Um, my friend Tom, uh, walked up to me and said, Hey, we're going to play this, uh, play this adventure called Test of the Topaz Championship. Uh, that was, uh, for many of you who remember the intro mod for H2R2. Um, and so it just sort of snowballed from there. I started going to conventions, uh, HOR3 started, I started getting more involved in GMing. Um, and then, uh, and then Corey walks up to me back in 2015 and is like, Hey, uh, you should run the next campaign. And so here we are. And Corey, how about you? Um, I actually got started playing the RPG back in 97. Um, I had played the CCG a few times, but it hadn't ever really clicked for me until after the RPG came out and I had a way to kind of interact with the setting in multiple fashions. Um, when I first started playing, there was uh, the core book, Way of the Shadowlands and Way of the Dragon, I think were the only ones available. And, and by golly, we, we walked uphill both ways to get the, our um, roll and keep on. Um, I um, started doing a, a playtest for the third edition when it came out, and I was part of playtest for fourth edition. And that's kind of how I got to know Rob Hobart, who ran HR1 and HR2. And um, I, when the um, uh, HR2 came to, to finish, he, um, he was uh, looking at starting a family, and he was actually on staff with AEG, and he just didn't have the time for the living campaign, so I took it over from him at that point. And, um, yeah, I've uh, been going ever since. That's fantastic. And what, how are, I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of this, but what do you both do with L5R nowadays? Uh, 
my involvement is pretty much exclusively Heroes of Rokugan at the moment. Um, I, I I own the cards um, at least through the first uh, the first cycle. Um, but I mean, Heroes of Rokugan, as I'm sure you guys can imagine, is a pretty large time investment. So I don't um, I don't end up getting to play the uh, card game as much as I might like. I'm largely in the same situation. There's a community here in Wichita where I live that's uh, developing a little bit more, and I'm trying to work with those guys to uh, get the RPG. Well, we keep talking about HOR and Heroes of Rokugan, so why don't you explain what that is for our listeners? Uh, sure. Uh, so Heroes of Rokugan is uh, a living role-playing game, um, which basically means it's a uh, it's a larger scale campaign uh, where everybody plays the same modules, gets uh, roughly the same experience, um, and they get they get through their this module play through uh, also our interactive play an opportunity uh, to affect the story that is being told. Um, I'll, I'll add to that that Heroes of Rokugan is also the community of, of the players themselves who do more than necessarily just take part in the modules. Um, they also assist with uh, various charitable contributions that we um, uh, that, that we go through to, to um, help keep the game going. And honestly, I have to say that I, I have found the HOR players to be some of the best players to be found in the gaming hobby anywhere. So I'm very proud of our community that we've got. What do you think uh, makes them some of the, the best uh, uh, gaming communities that you've worked with? Um, part of it's the investment. Uh, L5R, by its nature, um, gets people uh, emotionally invested in, in their clan, in their characters, in the setting. And because it's so much about um, honor and glory and doing the right thing, while it, it often it's de- defined by a code of um, ethics that is somewhat alien to our modern Western sensibilities, nonetheless, uh, it is still aspirational that we are, we, we are generally playing characters who are trying to be good people and trying to live up to the name of heroes. What do you think is hard about playing a character in L5R in general or HOR in specific? Um, for me, it's always that moment where it's like, like something that you you as a person would net, would just without a doubt say this is the right thing to do and then realizing that that what you think the right thing to do and what the setting says is the right thing to do don't necessarily jive. Uh, That's definitely caused a lot of... We've had a lot of late-night diner conversations after our game days about those uh, dilemmas. I know my wife has on a few times after playing an HOR module gone, there was no way to do the right thing without losing honor there. And I go, well, that's sometimes the way Rokugan works. Um, and yeah, and that's that's something that we've we try to make a conscious conscious effort towards uh, displaying in modules, which is that like, um, especially recently, the uh, the best example is that what what you might think is the compassionate response doesn't necessarily work in Rogugan and causes problems. Yeah, if it was if it was easy, it wouldn't be worthwhile. Yeah, if it was if it was easy, everyone would do it. Exactly. Uh, I, 
as far as compassion goes, um, I know our group has had a lot of discussions that of the, of the seven virtues in uh, Bushido, there's uh, players often tend to put an emphasis on compassion because it's the one that is most easy to recognize and for us to express as Westerners. Um, but other ones tend, they, it's not that they don't come up, but they're harder, I think, for a lot of players to express or put themselves in that mindset. Well, um, yes, and, and unfortunately, that's also the case for the, the mod writers, which is why compassion tends to show up most often in the modules. Um, also, legitimately, it's the one that presents the most interesting choices. Uh, you, as we're sitting around a table or we're sitting in a living room or wherever we're sitting and safely playing our game, a question of courage is not generally a hard decision for a player to make, even though it may be difficult for the a character to make. Uh, but compassion has more... Um, has has more moral um, uh, weight to it that it engages the players in a different fashion. I, I agree. I actually think that's one of the reasons why L five R is one of the more compelling settings is because in um you know you you can run it very much like you'd run a D campaign things like that where you wander on into the cave and you kill all the orcs. Uh, not not that there are orcs in Rokugan, um, but. Uh, some of the most compelling plays, the ones where you have to make sort of a moral choice, a compassionate choice. Do you guys have any, have any examples of your favorite times when you've done that uh, uh, in, um, in play or in writing? Um, I'm not going to go into spoilers because the mod is still, uh, you know, potentially being played by people. But I, I really enjoy the, the question that got put over in uh, changing the game. Um... I can't go into too many details because, again, spoilers, but it was very much a question of one tenant of Bushido versus the other. And I think those are my favorite times in the setting is when those when the tenants um, when the tenants clash and you have to decide which one is the right tenant for your character. I, I just played that last weekend and uh, you even had the GM tearing up. Uh, that that box text at the end is the box text I'm so far most proud of in this campaign. Uh, which uh, which module did you say that was again? Changing the game. Changing the game. Okay. So if I was a um, a person listening to this podcast and I'm sitting there going, "This sounds really exciting, really interesting," um, how do I get involved with Heroes of Rokugan? Um. So the easiest way is if you already have a table, um, you can literally just go on to heroes-of-rokugan.net and request modules. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll approve them for you and you go. Um, obviously, if you don't already have a group, um, that gets a little harder. Uh, our forums do have, uh, do have a board for people trying to muster games. Um, and obviously, uh, if you can make it to our conventions, uh, that is, one of the easiest ways to get in because we have a hundred or so people there ready to play games and ready to have some fun. But the modules are available for free. Um, we do ask that people who run them report them so that we know what's going on. Even if the storyline implications of the, of the results from the module are already past their deadline, we like to know what players were out there, what groups are active, because um, that gives us a better sense of well, it gives us a better sense of how large the community is and also, um, to a certain extent, its makeup. If we know that there are X number of players of, of different clans, that tells us kind of what sort of things to be planning for in the future. 
But so this is something that literally anyone could just pick up. They can go to the website heroes-of-rohugan.net and create characters and get get right into the game if they have a, a, a table, if they have a group of people they can play with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, we talked uh, a little earlier, you mentioned uh, about interactives, and uh, I know that these are sort of the big things that happen at um, uh, some of the more national conventions and things like that. Could you go a little bit into what the interactives are like and things like that? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, interactive uh, is kind of our our term for LARP. Um, it's a chance for you to bring your characters into into a political situation um, where you have the opportunity to to make you know one time large scale changes to to the campaign in some way. Um, it, it's you know if, if you're a fan of politics, it's a great opportunity for people to. Uh, to you know, stretch their political legs, as it were, and uh, get a real chance to to interact with players and interact with the story in a unique way that doesn't present itself early in the modules. At a, at a module, you're probably only playing with about five other people, maybe six or seven at um, a particularly large table. Um, at a LARP event, you get an opportunity to interact with the entire room, um, essentially on your own terms, and it's a chance to to be more in character for longer than you usually get just playing at a table as well. There's no um, stop pausing to look up rules. There's no um, box text. There's no um, um, plot to get in the way of the actual role play. You, you wind up role playing uh, as you go. Um, I'll also point out that at Gen Con, we tend to, although not every year, we do tend to run a battle interactive, which is more um, uh, play at a table because it's obviously it's, it's war, which is a uh, continuation of politics by other means, I suppose. But um, nonetheless, it's it's a more action-based opportunity for players to play with other people that they haven't played with before and for their actions at the table to impact on the larger scale. And uh, and what conventions uh, do you uh, hold these interactives at? I know you mentioned Gen Con. Uh, yeah, uh, so we do uh, Midwest Game Fest, which is a small convention over in Independence, Missouri, every November. Uh, we're going to be holding Weekend in Rokugan, uh, March 15th through 17th this year in St. Louis. Um, those two in Gen Con are the big ones. Uh, we do occasionally write uh, small-scale traveling interactives um, when people you know, when people request them. And we're also uh, talking about, though we haven't confirmed at this point, the potential of returning to Origins and doing content at Origins again i'd also say that a lot of local groups uh, ours is one of them have our own game days they're not conventions but is a weekend you can come and play a bunch of mods catch up with things and occasionally you guys have taught have given us things like the traveling interactives uh to make it a bit more of a special event yes and we've had a few smaller conventions um over the years where we've had a presence um uh uh, a new con in Omaha, uh, Chupacabra con in Austin. Uh, there's a tsunami con here in Wichita, Kansas that's coming up this year that we're going to try to get some um, players at. But those are those are smaller scale events. Um, we don't anticipate having the um, you know hundred players or so that we'll get at Wheeler or uh, or Gen Con for certain. 
That's great. I know um, as a player of HOR myself, I couldn't always attend uh, those national campaigns. And uh, and one of the things I liked is that they, they, the national events, one of the things I liked is that you could still um, uh, play without having to attend those. So what would you say to those players who, who can't always attend those national events? Because it is possible to keep enjoying the campaign without attending them. But um, uh, how, how can they really enjoy it without, without going? Um. I mean, obviously, there's there's the modules. Um, you know, you don't you don't need to come to a national convention to play a module. Uh, you just have to you know sit down, uh, find some friends, and play. Um, and if you play the module within three months, uh, that module is still fa- factored into when we, uh, what the canon of that module was. So even if you weren't at the convention, what you do in those modules generally still matters, and. You know, since sometimes we are not always, you know, our, our content isn't always out right at the end of the convention, uh, I do tend to uh, make that three-month deadline a little looser um, to, to acknowledge the fact that I'm not always great at deadlines. <laughs> and, and, and as technology has gotten better, online play has become easier for a lot of people to manage, um, whether it's Skype or Discord or other chat programs, and then there are the opportunities for shared um, dice rollers and that sort of thing. Um, as, as time goes on, we're just getting more and more options for that sort of thing. Uh, additionally, I'll, I'm going to go ahead and point out that uh, fiction writing, uh, while it doesn't have uh, necessarily specific impact on your character, can impact the, the overall storyline of, um, um, of the campaign. Um, the downside is the player. It, it does have editorial oversight by the campaign staff, but um, any player can write a fiction to uh, try to uh, flesh out the setting a little bit and have a little bit of a, of a, um, a guide on the, the way that things are going down in uh, our version of Rokugan. Now, that's one of the things that's actually, I think, uh, kind of unique uh, to uh, Heroes of Rokugan. Could you go a little bit more into that, like um, uh, what writing a fiction you know, entails, what sort of things you could influence, uh, how, how people use it to, to, to help in, improve their play? Um, well, in years past, in campaigns past, it has been used as a tool for an individual player to um, flesh out the story of their PC and, by extension, get additional mechanical benefits from doing so. Um, as a result, we, because of the way that the, that latter portion of it got overemphasized, we've changed it so that instead of being specific to a PC, it is um, general for the setting. So if you want to write a story about how uh, the Scorpion clan um, um, fight off a lion attack at Baden um, Village, for example... Um, we may not have planned on there being a lion attack at Baden Village, but if it's a story that does a good job of fleshing and stuff on the setting, we can go ahead and incorporate that and go forward. Uh, worth pointing out that minor skirmishes between the clans happen all the time, so that's not a particularly disruptive event necessarily. Um, we can also make it, you know, we can also take that, and if we wanted to go somewhere larger with that, then we could take that and start building that into future modules that other players would get an opportunity to interact with and take that as a as a springboard ah, as a springboard for that for a plot that would drive up some more conflict between the scorpion and the unicorn uh, and scorpion and lion in this example. It sounds like an awful lot to keep track of, actually. It can be, but um, we have a 
pretty good idea of the big picture and, um, honestly, getting some uh, crowdsourcing on the details is very helpful. Uh, It's one of the things that modules do. Again, any any player can write a module. They may not be um, um, released as they write it. It may may see some editing in the process, but um, we are more than happy to take any any, uh, submissions people want to send our way. Uh, I think you, you and I actually talked about that at Gen Con uh, this year. Said uh, if, if you need to have complete oversight of what you're doing, write a novel. If you want to have a shared story where you're mostly in charge, run your own game. But the point of a living community is you're participating in a whole community, developing things together. Exactly. Yeah. So, can you talk a little bit about more about the different roles in HOR that you have as admins, what that entails, the different things you all got up to? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so my major thing that I do, besides obviously writing the the bigger modules that have the bigger campaign effect for the most part, um, is I kind of make sure whatever whatever we're doing is heading towards uh, whatever the bigger picture is. Um, and beyond that, I also I also do a lot of working with the players who submit modules and things like that, and getting uh, getting their modules ready for. Uh, for general release. Uh, the, the distinction I tend to make is that Chris is the story admin um, and I'm the continuity admin, which means that when it comes to the story and the setting, which is, since this is a storytelling uh, hobby, means that he takes the primary role. It's his story. It's his version of the setting that we're working with. Um, I'm here as a continuity admin to try to make sure that everything flows, that we keep moving forward um, that we have the modules, that the rules are doing the things we want the rules to do, um, uh, stuff like that. And in a large measure, I'm basically um, Chris's uh, second, um, while he has the vision for the overall story that we're playing. So, how would you say that experience is different for a living campaign than for a home campaign? Um. Well, uh, in the home campaign, the GM uh, the GM basically handles all of those roles and doesn't really. I mean, besides you know players calling him out on his uh, on his BS. Um, well, my players never do that. <laughs> <laughs> Not if they know what's good I think for I them. Have done that to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know the the GM the GM ultimately has the power at the table. Um, in in our situation, in mine and Corey's, uh, Katz and Kristen's. Um, and, and that whole thing, you know, we all, we have all have a role to play in making sure, uh, making sure everything runs smoothly. And it's, um, especially in a living campaign where we run at conventions and things like that, it's so much more than just putting content out there. There's a lot of logistical concerns, making sure, uh, making sure our GMs are scheduled to get, get everything in, making sure we have a site in order to, in order to run our conventions, things like that. Um, that plays such a huge role in making all of this work that a GM at a, just a home game never has to worry about. Um, and this is the part where I, uh, make sure to say that Caitlin does an amazing job at like 90% of those organizational things. Um, I, I say 90%, it's a hundred percent. Let's be real. Um, um, <laughs> and we, we, we like, can take care of that in editing. <laughs> uh, we would not be able to run this campaign with all of this without all the stuff that Caitlin uh, takes care of. She is invaluable to making this run. 
Um, uh, as far as the the different other differences between Living Campaign and the Home Campaign go, um, it tends to be more episodic in nature. Uh, each individual module is a little bit more focused on just the events at the module because you don't necessarily know uh, for each given character what their previous experiences in the campaign have been, um, and you may be playing things out of order. So you, you tend to focus more on play the immediate play rather than uh, the larger narrative. The larger narrative is always there, and it does have an impact, obviously, but um, we also have to deal with the fact that when you're playing at a table, you may be playing with people you don't know, you may be playing with a GM you don't know, um, and so we try to set things up in the modules to uh, accommodate that and to be fairly straightforward and um, allow the GMs to um, uh, get the players opportunities to excel and, and advance and feel like they're accomplishing things while still presenting an adequate challenge. There's there's also one other like major difference between a GM uh, and us in this living campaign. When you're a GM in a home campaign, you personalize everything to your players. Um, if I tried to do that in, a, in Heroes of Rokugan, obviously I'd go insane. Um, so so trying to there, there's definitely a difference in trying to weave a narrative that PCs that a broad stroke of PCs are going to be interested in. Um, while also offering opportunities for for PCs to to have unique role playing opportunities, um, it's definitely it's definitely a challenge in this sort of campaign. So one of the things um, that uh, to touching on that um, is there a way for GMs to sort of personalize modules, even though they have to be reported back to the national campaign? Um, I mean. You're always like the modules are guidelines. Um, obviously, like everybody should be experiencing the same general story beats. But if there is an opportunity for for a PC to to have a unique opportunity to interact with an ally or something like that, like if if I have ally uh, the Shosero Daimyo and the Shosero Daimyo takes place in this mod, it would be really cool for the GM to have like some sort of unique interaction. And the modules are intentionally designed to give you opportunities to offer that if uh, if you feel comfortable doing so. What can players do to make help the GMs give them those, I don't want to say customized, but more personal experience? Um... It's a little difficult at conventions because we're trying, you know, we're trying to fit content into four-hour time slots. Um, but um, I used to have, like, in HOR2, I had my backstory uh, in hand along with my disadvantages. Um, so if, like, if GMs were interested in that and wanted to use that to personalize it, you know, I could hand that to them. Uh, and I had some really cool RP moments uh, because, because some really good GMs uh, took that and ran with it. It's a question of communication. Uh, the, the best GM in the world can't do something with a factor that they don't know about. Um, so, to a large extent, that's that's going to be on the player if they're playing with someone that they don't that they haven't played with before, they don't know, or even someone they have played with before, but they don't play with regularly enough that that's to be expected. Um, um, that's one of the reasons I've tried to get people more into a habit of having the GM look over the sheets so that they know what they're what 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 the players um, are going to are likely to be able to do um, before the module begins. 
uh, one of our players, Mike Brust, actually has little uh, little table tents uh, for his unlucky disadvantage that the GM can flick over when he wants to use unlucky. <laughs> Just as a small example of <laughs> something you can do. That's cute. That, that's fantastic. Uh, Corey, I remember one of the th- one of my favorite posts you did on the HR forums uh, was talking about players who have weird mechanics and talking about how you, you should talk with the GM before the game starts, not just to warn them, because most GMs would rather play with you. You you don't need to try and surprise them. They're not an adversary. Exactly. It's uh, something that I've read in uh, some of the, the Powered by the Apocalypse uh, stuff is that the GM is supposed to be a fan of the PCs. They're supposed to be on the PC's side, getting them to a point where they can do cool stuff. Now, that does mean putting opposition in their way. That does mean giving them conflict, because if there isn't opposition, if there isn't that conflict, then you, the PCs don't get a chance to actually be cool. But the, the, the GM is supposed to be on the PC's team, so having the player communicate with the GM about that to make sure it happens in a um, uh, natural and um, smooth fashion is just in everybody's best interest. I think a lot of that uh, is sort of uh, becoming very popular in, in LARP culture as well. There's this uh, concept in LARP culture of playing to lift, and that uh, when you're when you're playing, you're not just doing your best to, to get your story told, but to lift other players' stories up. And I think it's great that um, that it, with a GM at a table can do that as well. I think that's fantastic. Um, speaking of you know lifting up and things of that nature, you guys were talking about uh, some charities that that the Heroes of Rohan community supports. And and, um, and works at various uh, uh, various conventions. Uh, could you talk about some of the, the, these charities that you've been supporting and things of that nature? Uh, well, every year at Midwest Game Fest, because it takes place in early November usually, it's right around the time for the, the holidays. So we do a Toys for Tots drive there. Uh, Midwest Game Fest also has a um, uh, arrangement with the Harvesters, which is a local to their to, to the Kansas City Independence Area. Um, uh, uh, homeless shelter and and, and um, that's as far as regular our regular charities go um, about as far as that goes for weir we tend to pick a different charity every year we get, we've donated to women's shelters uh, there was a, 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 a child's uh, a, a cancer um, group that we were helping out um, I think it was our charity last year um, so we tend to we tend to go with something local, so we'll find something in the St. Louis area. We've got a, a bunch of players in, in St. Louis who are uh, kind of um, in tune with that sort of thing, and they can they can they can generally steer us towards um, charities that are in need and are deserving, which are um, sometimes feels like it can be hard to find. That's a, it, one more reason why this is a fantastic community. And I, I know that uh, in the card game, the Cotes used to have charity drives, um, with even with prizes for people that could do – like there were small things. But there was this, all, all this idea that if we're playing honorable people from this culture, we should be doing something honorable as well as players. Yes, very much so. So – Looking more into the uh, into the future of the game, have you guys had a chance to look at the fifth edition rules yet? Um, I have had chances to make a very cursory glance. Um, there are thing there are definitely things about the system that I I like. Um, I, I love I love the fact that it actually has social combat rules. Um, I. 
um, the the idea behind approaches are uh, are very interesting to me. Um, on the same token, there are definitely challenges um, that the that the new edition pre- uh, presents um, for the sake of a living campaign. Um, and Corey has, I think, had a a slightly deeper dive into it and can talk more uh, talk more on those challenges. There are there are quite a few specific things that would need altered for a living campaign. Um, there are, uh, like Chris says, there are things about that I really do like and appreciate. Uh, taking the character creation process into uh, literally the twenty questions gets it does a very good job of letting you know who the character is once you get done with it. But the downside to that is that it's not really possible to easily create a character um, as written uh, in a short period of time. I can create a fourth edition character in about two and a half, maybe three minutes. Um, and this is going to take a little bit longer to, to suss out. Um, and it, it, there's a lot of places where it's just like that, where, where a good thing brings with it um, adjustments that will need to be made. Um, but um, realistically speaking, any living campaign should have a um, a, a uh, campaign document that tells you what the uh, alterations to the rules are. Uh, unfortunately, we're still working on ours, but um, for fifth it's only edition, been three it's, years. You've got time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's been on my to do list for a very long time. But for fifth edition, it would absolutely be required, just based off of how the rules themselves are written. So, do you think there's a possibility that probably not for this campaign, but for the uh, HR five that they might switch over to fifth edition? The important thing to remember is that we are a volunteer organization and we um, exist using the uh, intellectual property of a, uh, of a, of a company. Um, they allow us to do so. They can request that we not do so at pretty much any time. So we try to make sure that we're in, that we maintain a, a good working relationship with the company. Um, when it was AEG, we had a we had a solid in um, with um, um, a, a number of people there that we that, that I'd known for quite a while. Actually, um, FFG is a less known entity, but we do stay in contact with them. So if they request it, we're going to have to change. And that's just that's just what it comes down to. Um, going forward into the future, I believe that once we change campaigns, we will have to change the editions of the game simply because that will be what is on the shelves. That will be what is available for people to, to buy, and that's what's going to draw in new players and what, um, uh, realistically speaking, the, the benefit we give as an organization to the company is that we provide them a market for their games. So um, we will need to be using the new edition eventually. Yeah. Um, just speaking from the, the practical aspect, um, if we switch now, there would be players who couldn't play their characters. Like... Just even as an immediate example, I wouldn't be able to. I wouldn't be able to build out of the school I chose for my character if we moved to fifth edition today, because uh, Beishi Bushi doesn't exist right now. Um, so there, there's the practical. There's the practical challenge of it's. It's not fair to a player to say, "Hey, you've been playing this character for three years, but now you can't." Um, and then there's also the the, the idea of trying to. Uh, uh, completely rewrite 
30 modules that we've already written, uh, not to mention modules that are already in the, uh, in the pipeline and things like that. It's, it it would be a logistical nightmare to try to, to try to change at this point. Um, but, but moving forward, it, it, I think fifth edition is going to be a system that we will use going, you know, once the story is ended. So in a few years, maybe, and that also gives people time to figure out how to run the system and how to really make it sing. Uh, us as much as anybody. <laughs> have, have you tried the beginner box yet? I I have not bought the beginner box. Uh, I have the the actual core book sitting over on my desk, uh, but I have not actually seen the beginner box, so I don't know anything about it. Um, it is I, a great introduction to the system. I do recommend it. I, I will admit I bought the uh, beginner box as much for the maps as for any other reason. Uh, <laughs> they are very pretty maps. Um, <laughs> but I... Um, um, I have a. This is going to sound kind of interesting. I have a hard time with a lot of um, pre-written modules, um, given that I write pre-written modules kind of on a regular basis. That's an odd thing to say, but um, uh, getting my my particular playgroup through uh, that particular storyline is going to take a little bit of adjustment on my part. I'm still working on. What are the things that come up when you try and run other people's pre-written mods? Um, well, this has mostly come up, I, to be fair, this has mostly come up in the past with, um, other, um, generally other games, but, um, uh, the, 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 one of the things I have learned from reading and trying to run other pre-written modules, and I try to incorporate into the mods that we produce for HLR, is that, um, you should not make an assumption that, uh, the characters are going to fall under any particular category. Um, it, it, whether it's motivation or skill set or, um, uh, you know, in LFIR, clan composition or anything along those lines, there should not be an assumption that the players are going to come down on one side or another of an issue. Uh, there should not be an assumption how the players are, of how the players are going to solve a particular task. Now, a task may only have one adequate um, or reasonable solution, but players being players, they are going to try to find another way. Um, so I, I think a little more, most most pre-written modules tend not to have a lot of flexibility to them, which we try to incorporate more in HLR. The, the biggest frustration I hit whenever I sit down and play something that's pre-written is like being like, oh yeah, I want to do this thing that I think is entirely reasonable, and then the GM tells me, no, I can't do that because the module says I can't. Um, and so, so while yes, there, I mean, you know, modules do kind of take place, uh, within the context of whatever story is being told. I, I always try to make sure there's some flexibility that if somebody's like, well, I'd really rather go this way. Um, there, there's some flexibility for the GM to take it in that direction and see what happens. It's, it's also useful to understand the difference between yes, but, and Um, no. Um, if a player is told, well, yeah, you can try to assassinate that guy, but his guards are probably going to kill you, they will frequently take that as a no. Whereas the actual answer is, yes, you can do this, but there are consequences that will come to you as a result. If you're Um, truly devoted to your duty, you would would do it. If you saw assassinating that dude as your duty, sure. On the other hand, maybe maybe the module's not written for you to assassinate that dude, so there's there's another way to, to solve the problem. Um, so yeah, it's it's 
it, it, it is a balance between the flexibility of allowing players to have um, options that they want while still being able to um, um, move forward with the coherent story. And I know we were talking about 5th edition, but I actually just want to stick on this for, topic for a little bit longer. Uh, can you talk more about how you write modules to give GMs enough information to be able to improvise? Um, this is something I've actually started recently. Um, in investigation modules, um, a lot of time... Uh, and, uh, I'll be I'll, I'll completely honest here. I love writing a good mystery. Uh, so a lot of my modules tend to have some element of mystery in them. Um, now... It's very important for the GM to understand what actually happened to cause the mystery, uh, what the true objective account of the uh, events were, in addition to whatever subjective things the NPCs are going to say or whatever clues um, uh, PCs are going to pick up on. Because that way, when a player wants to use an approach, to use the 5th edition terminology, but wants to use an approach or a skill that is not necessarily predicted in the module, the GM has a firm enough understanding of what's going on to be able to provide them with the clues that they could reasonably pick up on. So I've started writing my modules uh, with investigation scenes with a description of what actually happened so that the GM can, can have that information um, ahead of time uh, instead of just kind of just plumping it in where the, the skill rolls to get the clues are at. Uh, so the GM has to actually, the GM doesn't have to figure things out. The GM can just read and see what's happened. Um, I'm sorry, I lost the thread of that question a little bit. No, that was a great answer. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> personal preferences, but um, yeah, in, in general, it's it's making certain that the GM understands the the the, the setting, the setup of what's going on, so they can make the decision. Um, is in a lot of ways more important than giving them this is an investigation search perception role with a TN of six of. 15 and here's six pieces of information they can get for blah 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 the mechanics are important mostly because then the gm doesn't have to think about it and come up with the numbers on the fly if a gm comes up with better numbers while they're running it they're as long as they're getting the players through the story that's what's important i think that's just great um i'd like to kind of switch gears uh at the moment here to talk about things that every role player loves to talk about their own characters. Uh, <laughs> so um, what, what sort of uh, types of characters do you guys prefer to play? Um, I have a wide variety of character archetypes that I enjoy. Um, just as an example, back in HOR three, I was playing very much the, uh, the courtly character, um, the, well, and that character that character evolved in so many ways, going from like the courtly, uh, friendly character to the more aggressive, combaty character, uh, just because of how the story went. Um, but I I wear a lot of hats. Um, I I've enjoyed playing the cold investigator type of character. That's kind of the character that I play in the rare instance that I get to run a module right now. Um, I enjoy playing spiritual characters. Um, I won't rant about why Shugenja mechanics frustrate me here. Um, <laughs> but I, I would uh, think a Rokugan uh, RPG podcast would be the perfect time to rant. About that. <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> um, but the, the concept of spiritual characters very much interest me. Um, I, I could take an archetype from basically any clan and find a fun character to play out of it. Um, 
And so, so I guess I don't really have a super high preference for one single archetype, but rather I, I enjoy taking archetypes and seeing how they grow within a story. Uh, my answer is fairly similar. I like playing characters who have a broad base of skills who are capable of con- contributing uh, in multiple fashions. Um, and I want to basically, I want to help move the story forward and help the other characters think about their own roles and decisions at the table. Um, and I can do that with a Bushi or a Courtier or a Shugenja and have in the past. So, um, um, I, I enjoy things from every single clan, even though I do have my favorite, like everybody does. Um, so I can, I can play almost anything, but the, the, those are the factors that are going to come into play when, for any character I have, is that they're going to have more, more than one thing to do and their design is going to be to help other players get stuff done. What I like about both your answers is they're both ba- you both basically say create a character that gets involved in the game, not someone who says this is the one thing I'm specialized in and sits back and stacks dice until that comes up. Well, I mean, you can do that, and if you enjoy that kind of play, then uh, who are we to stop you? But it just means that you're going to be sitting there bored for a while um, until your thing comes up. I, I always feel you can find who the GMs are by have. There's the ones who have those type of characters, the ones that say, "I want to make everything work," because they have to work so hard when they're GMs to make everything work. <laughs> and our, our other big question um, is: Do you have any favorite house rules? Now, this doesn't have to be specific to HOR, but any ways you like to you particularly enjoy tweaking the system. Uh, Corey, do you want to start with this one? I mean, um, I, I'm going to be honest. I have I have been playing the game since there's been a game, and so there have been a lot of house rules I've made over the years. Um, uh, some of which even got published. So, um, uh, yeah, can you give an example? Oh, um, the uh, in third edition, you could your limit on raises was not just your void ring; it was also your ranks and the skill. Uh, that was originally a house rule that I had that I brought to the table for during playtest. And since we were at the time looking for something more for skill ranks to represent, Rich Wolf decided that to go ahead and incorporate that. And I was very proud of that moment. Um, it got dropped in fourth edition because it was a little bit, it was yet another thing to keep track of. And they were trying to limit the number of things to keep track of. But I, I appreciated what that brought to the table. Um, on the whole, I'd like to focus more on the, the, the rules that are um, adding things like that rather than like what I view as necessary fixes like removing faint. <clears throat> um, I, have a, I have a very long rant about faint, and I will just summarize it by saying I think the, those rules are bad, um, and therefore we don't use them. Um, and... Um, um, Anyone who wants to see the rant, I think you actually published that on the HOR forums. Possibly, possibly more than once. <laughs> it's it's been it's been a bugaboo of mine since fourth edition came out. Um, in any event, um, the uh, um, one of the things I have done in the past it's gonna it is, is a factor in fifth edition is ranking requirements. Um, and as the rules as written, there's no limit on where your skills have to be at, what your rings have to be at, that sort of thing, for when you go up in school rank. Um, I have frequently had uh, provided my players with guidelines on things that their characters should have um, 
in order to impress their sensei enough to actually earn the next rank of their school. I, they tend to not be very onerous, but I don't like seeing, for example, a doji courtier who has max ranks in EI Jutsu, but has never raised their etiquette rating, for example. Um, uh, not at random. Um, <laughs> was an oddly specific example. Yeah, yeah. Things things that I've seen in online play that I, I just did not appreciate at the time. Um, but um, I, 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 you, you want to be flexible with that sort of thing so the characters, the players don't feel like you're telling them how they have to spend their points. Um, at the same point, you want to make sure that the rules are a reflection of who the character is rather than just uh, an end in their own right. Um, I, I view the numbers as having meaning only in, the, in how they describe the character. Um, they don't they shouldn't be a um, uh, a goal in and of themselves. Yeah, I think uh, one of my favorite. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say mine is a lot uh, quicker and simpler. Um, I try to I try to minimize house rules. I I don't mind them, but I'm not the biggest fan of them. So I try to keep them as possible and try to make them you know strictly additive. Uh, the one thing I'm very proud of is how we adjusted uh, Beyushi Bushi uh, post the faint removal for HOR4. Um, mostly because I think old Beyushi 3 is really, really good, and the fact that you can now uh, you can now disarm weapons into people or into your hand with the kata again, uh, it makes me very happy in my soul. I, I, I really un- understand and, and get you, uh, Corey, when you talk about um, uh, creating um, sort of house rules on how people rank up and things like that. One of my favorite rules in uh, the most uh, in, in fourth edition is, and I think it might have been the prior editions too, but I can't remember, is that you get insight bonuses for increasing your courtier and etiquette to rank three and eventually to rank five um and because it just it, it just shows and, and encourages all samurai whether you're bushi shugenja courtier to have those skills have them at a certain level because all bushi all all, all samurai really should be versed in etiquette should be versed in the ways of the court because you know it, it's as much of a battlefield as uh, as the actual battlefield there is part of me that wishes artisan skills had similar mastery abilities, but that is, uh, again, a rant for another time. Whereas I'd rather they go into the lore skills. Um, but yeah, that's that was another one of those things that were very prevalent in 3rd edition that they tried to tone down in 4th edition. Um, we, we all saw the design diaries with 4th edition where they were trying to streamline it. Yeah, uh, And I understand with the living campaign, you don't want to have a 30 page house rules document. You want people to get the core book and just play. Yes. Uh, but it is, it is one of those things that I see a lot of GMs adjusting for their home games. Well, and ultimately that's, that's why we eliminated faint instead of writing a new mechanic to go into faint. Um, uh, that way all we had to do was manipulate the, those few places where that mechanic pops up in school or Kaga, and, uh, we could just go on about our day. Well, with that, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to channel my best Mel Palmer here. It is time for listener questions. We're probably going to add some uh, echo effect in editing on that one. Ooh, that sounds <laughs> nice. All right. So our first question comes from one of my favorite players, Terry and uh, Gwyngab. And hey, I'm married to her. <laughs> and her, she has two questions for you. Her first question is, how do you determine difficulty level, low rank, low mid rank, etc., when developing modules? 
Um, I, I think that's a really good question. There's actually a couple of different things that go into it. Uh, sometimes it's a little more on the meta side and kind of mathematical. Like there's X experience in the campaign, so therefore most people are Y rank. We need to produce mods that are in that threat range. Um, but there are some modules where the opposition or the, the, the core conflict is just at a specific level that requires higher rank or lower rank PCs. Uh, for example, we don't like sending rank 1 PCs into the Shadowlands. Um, it just it just seems a little rude. Um, and on the other hand, there are going to be conflicts that we want to tell stories about that are just, okay, this is, this is for brand new characters. So we have regular introductory modules um, so that we can do, tell those kinds of stories and so that we can have options for brand new players to come in, coming into the campaign to catch up easier. And her second question, why the masks? <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to need some, uh, some detail. Well, Jung called the persona an integral part of it of how we interact with our fellow humans. Um, <laughs> but beyond that, I'm, I'm not sure either. So, but her, uh, this, for people not familiar, this is a reference to one of the modules where, not to give details away, there's a character who keeps asking Scorpion why they wear masks, and no matter what explanations the players give, will not understand the answer. So, one more time for the records, but why the masks? <laughs> Um, you know, um, you gotta, you, you gotta do your scorpion thing and scorpions wear masks. Scorpion and a scorpion. So that there's always a question. Uh-huh. Our next question comes from Cassandra Marks. What is your favorite idea for a weird or wacky alternate L5R setting? And would you ever actually run it? Um, I tend to actually play Rokugan fairly straight. Um, just because it's like, I, I sort of separate in my head, uh, the types, you know, the types of settings I'm expecting when I play games. Uh, so when I play L5R, I'm expecting to play very serious samurai stories. When I'm playing, uh, D and D, I'm expecting a dungeon crawl. When I'm playing rednecks in space, I expect wacky, uh, wacky shenanigans with rednecks in space. Is that a real um, game? That is a real game. I played it with Matt Parker, uh, a while ago and it was... Um, Matt Parker is a very funny human, and um, and so him in a in his element in a very comedic sort of role playing uh, experience. Uh, I I spent a lot of time on the floor nearly crying. <laughs> yeah, I need to find that find a copy of that. I might be remembering the name slightly wrong. Uh, I will have to find the people who ran that for me and uh and make sure I have the name correct. That sounds like a Sunday mod. It, it um, absolutely was. Uh, now, the Imperial Histories books have a lot of different settings, some of which kind of qualify as wacky. Um, me personally, though, um, I actually would legitimately like to try a hand, my hand at Anthro 5R at some point. Um, I'm a huge fan of Stan Sakai, so Usagi Yojimbo um, was a, is a major influence on me. Um, um, uh, having a, a doing a Kung Fu Panda thing where basically there's different animals for each of the different clans. And although I almost certainly not actually use the, the totem animal for the uh, clan as the type of animal that you're playing. Um, I can't see doing it for a living campaign, even like as a joke, but um, for a home group, I think it'd be kind of fun. Uh, it, knowing Cassandra, she is going to be immediately messaging me after this podcast comes out, asking you to run it for her. 
Um, hey, uh, if you remember, the old Palladium system has uh, uh, rules for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and they've also got a Ninjas and Super Spies uh, uh, game that has like 40 or 50 different kinds of martial arts in it. So if you can stomach the Palladium rules, uh, you've got the perfect setup for Kung Fu Panda right there. Um, or just, you know, modify them to um, the, the, the ideas to an L5R port and uh, go from there. All right. And our, our next question is actually a follow-up question from David Gordon. He wants to know uh, why that favorite wacky alternate L5R campaign setting is actually the baseball episode where the all-star team led by Doji Home Run Hotori and Akoto the General – sorry, Doji Home Run Hotoru, Hotori and Akoto the General Totori had to defend the Honor of the Emerald League at the Great Game of Thunder. All of this does is remind me that uh... – that naming two of your central characters Hoturi and Toturi was a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> um, well, all it does is remind me that David is a very clever and funny individual, and I wish I got to hang out with him more often. There's that as well. He, he may actually be on our list of people that we want to interview in the future. That totally makes sense. Yeah, should. Um, I'm not actually all that fond of baseball episodes, so that really wouldn't be on my list. But yeah. I. Yeah, and I don't know anything about the game of baseball, really, so. <laughs> uh, he has a few other questions. Uh, this next one is, what was the most unexpected challenge each of you encountered as part of the creative staff behind the Living Campaign? And what was the most rewarding experience you had? Uh, my most challenging has been writing interactives. Uh, coming up with uh, coming up with a central idea and making interactives, uh, interactives work has always been like, my greatest challenge, um, which is why I'm glad that Corey uh, so generously decided to stay on staff because he does a very good job of making sure everything stays sane. Um, so far, the most rewarding experience I've had um, this year at Gen Con, uh, I happened to be standing over a table as it was finishing up changing the game and they were reading that final bit of box text uh, and after that table stood up, one of the players walked up to me and said, thank you for this module. And that's like moments like that are the moments that I run this campaign for. Um, for me, I go back a little bit further. Um, the sale of the IP literally one month after the conclusion of our first campaign, the first campaign I ran, uh, was, was, that was an unexpected challenge to have to deal with. Um, we were in the middle of setting up the interstitial campaign when we discovered that, oh, by the way, the, the fifth edition you thought you were working on is not the fifth edition you're going to be getting. Um, so, yeah, that was that was unexpected. Uh, rewarding, honestly, for me, it was the first Kickstarter we ran for the first weir that we ran. Um, the fact that it funded almost immediately, I, I want to say like less than, within less than 12 hours, let alone less than 24 hours. Um, it really... It demonstrated the community was was on board with us, and I've been trying to make sure we live up to that trust ever since. And David's final question: uh, What is the favorite L5R character you have played, either as a GM or a PC? And please give us the five minute version, not the two hour version. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, uh, it would have to be my HOR three PC, uh, Kitsusuko. Um, basically on accident, he ended up having some pretty heavy interactions, uh, with some, some big plot elements that, that Corey and Adam and Mike were working with. Um, and, 
and that character I don't think I've had a character change as much or as often as he did um, just because he he sort of ended up running the uh, running the emotional gamut as it were um, going from trying to be a good lion to trying to you know make good on the name of uh, Suko because as any L5R player who's been playing for a while knows Matsu Suko was sort of a big deal during the clan war. Um, and it was, it was a lot of fun getting to, getting to see how that character's story, uh, turned out. Um, for me, well, there are so very, very many characters I, I've played either, either as a GM or, uh, as a player, I think my favorite does have to be Doji Oharu. Um, I brought him from a home campaign into HOR3 because he does so much of what I think a real person who is, happens to be a samurai um, looks like rather than just being, you know, a, a, a caricature of a, of a real samurai. Um, uh, he's... he's uh, he has a lot of very serious character flaws and he does his best to hide his strengths. Um, but when he shows his strengths, he does a good job of, of, uh, making the story happen because he cuts through things that the players usually can't. Um, and, um, I, I had a lot of fun playing him, um, as someone the players loved to hate. Um, uh, he, he, he furthered the story and, um, uh, did what he meant to do, what he was meant to do. And, um, um, I, I think that a lot of people responded to him as a, um, uh, based off of both his flaws and his uh, strengths, which I which I find fascinating. We all liked Oharu at the end, though. Let's be honest. I think there's also something very satisfying about giving people someone that they enjoy running up against. Um, at the at the interactive this year, there was a, the battle interactive. There's an NPC I wrote uh, for one scene. You gave him a larger role. And then I heard, I was walking by one of the tables and there was a, another guy, there was one of the players saying, man, I cannot wait to cut this guy in half. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, David Engeron asks, what would be the most fun clan to run a single can- clan campaign for, such as a party of all dragon, all crab, etc.? Uh, if we're going by the perspective, this is probably the closest I would get to a silly campaign. I would love to run an all scorpion party with, uh, with, uh, a party of scorpion who all have different ideas of what the scorpion are supposed to be. <laughs> so you have like the actual, you know, the actual scorpion player who, who gets it, who understands what he's supposed to be doing. And then you have the lull ninja over there trying to sneak around everywhere, poison people because what the heck ever. Um, and, and I, I just, I think that would be entertaining to do for like five or six sessions before inevitably it imploded. Um, see, I've actually, I've actually gone through workups on this in the past. Um, and there are some clans that if this works really well for, um, the crab, the, uh, uh, the unicorn actually, um, the crane to a certain extent. And there are clans that it just does not work for. Like my favorite clan is the dragon, but there are, they don't work well just nothing but dragon as, as your uh, uh, campaign. I actually ran a campaign where everybody was sworn to the same crane provincial daimyo. About half the players were crane, and I tweaked the rules a little bit to allow other clans. But um, that was a lot of fun, but it was, um, yeah, 
on a personally real answer, I think Scorpion would be the most fun. Not for the reason Chris says, but because I think that you could do a, a, a story with uh, politics and and spies and ninja and all the sneaky shenanigans and provides you opportunities for um, action while still having the, the, the social interaction that really does drive a lot of what Elf Ivar is supposed to be about. Um, I think once you're focusing on a single clan, you're also doing a genre shift. Like the crab, oh, nice. the old crab campaign tends to be a horror campaign. The old scorpion one, like you said, is um, a politics or a spy film. Mm-hmm. Intrigue, at least, yes. I, I think my favorite thing about both of your answers is it's both scorpion, but one playing it seriously and one playing it absolutely wrong. <laughs> so our, our next question comes in from. Um, our next two questions actually comes in from David James. Uh, one of the things most unusual about Heroes of Rokugan as a campaign is the political interactives. One thing that happens in every campaign is players not behaving as intended. So how do you balance player choice interactives with trying to keep the story on track? Players not behaving as we plan is part of the plan. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, the the story, I mean, the story is a very loose thing uh subject to change like we have the overall beats uh planned um but like even even things in those overall beats have changed as as players have done things um as the realities of how npcs were presented uh came to light things like that um so so it's actually not that difficult to take whatever players whatever crazy thing players have done and uh, adjust it to fit into whatever, whatever we're doing from an overall perspective. Um, you know, there's, there's an overall understanding of what's going to happen, but no plan, no plan survives contact with the PCs. Well, the, the, the other side of that is that uh, player choice doesn't happen in a vacuum. There are NPCs back home that kind of will guide things. And we have, we have established whether they're in the modules or they're in, a, in Chris's campaign doc or wherever. There are certain things about the setting that are just the way they are. Some of these things can be changed, but some of them just can't. I mean, like you know, the law of gravity um, isn't just going to go away, go away because players choose to ignore it. Um, um, we, we, we try not to have a, a specific plan that we're trying to force. Like, like this came up at Gen Con, actually. Um, a lot of people were making the assumption that uh, Satori Kazator was the one that we thought was supposed to win the the, 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 comp, the, 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 the comp competition to become Imperial Advisor. I mean, that was my preferred goal, and I, I certainly worked for it because I was playing Kazatora, but um, and because I think it's the most interesting story wise. But we wouldn't have presented it as a question if we if we were trying to get a specific answer. Um, it just happened the way it did, and. Um, he was actually kind of how you depending on how you would look at it. He was kind of uh, an underdog, uh, just on the on the on the, the vote tally at the end uh, for the initial breakdown. Um, but it, it came to pass the way it did because of the way the players made their decisions. Um, um, I do have a, a, an anecdote from HOR three um, that demonstrates how flexible we kind of have to be um, going into the last year of the campaign. I had already decided who the big bad guy was going to have as his clan champions. He, he, was going to, he selected clan champions for all the new clan champions for all the clans because he was going to be the emperor. 
And I had decided that Yoritomo Gusai was going to be the Magnus Clan champion that he picked. That's why Gusai had been kind of an antagonist through various parts of the campaign. And then in the interactive for Weir that year of the last year of the campaign, the Mantis clan basically decided that they were just going to let, they were going to, they were going to stop fighting him. They were going to make him the champion. Um, as long as, um, uh, he made, uh, Yumiko, the, uh, Kumiko, excuse me, Kumiko, uh, his heir. Um, and at that point he had no reason to side with, uh, the, the usurper anymore. So I, I, I adjusted my plans and I changed things not insignificantly, uh, to, um, to reflect the way that the players had chosen to interact with an NPC, um, to, um, and change how I thought the things were going to go. That's a great example of just uh, how much the players can do to affect the storyline in Heroes of Rogue I want to thank you for that anecdote. Um, what do you believe is the right level of player freedom to have within a living campaign versus a typical tabletop campaign? Um, I mean, there's ah. always... There's always limitations in module play, right? Um, you know, you there, there's a certain expectation that if uh, the module says, hey, uh, you've been told to go to Biden, that you're not going to decide, well, screw that. I'm going to uh, Yasuki Yashiki. Um, but within the context of what's happening in the module, it's generally my great preference to make sure that PCs feel empowered, uh, to make sure that the decisions they are making are meaningful. Uh, basically, you, you, you've got to get player buy-in no matter what you're doing um, in any in any role-playing game. So, in in a module, the players need to be willing to go along with the general story. Okay, your lord has sent you to bait. You're going to bait. Um, but the GM needs to be flexible enough to allow them different ways to accomplish whatever it is their lord sent them to do. So, your lord sent you to Baden to represent the clan at some court event or other. Okay, fine, whatever. Um, the GM needs to be flexible enough to let them represent the clan in different fashions, whatever is appropriate for the character. Um, it, it's <sighs> by sitting the process of sitting at the table, you're you are expected to go along with certain things. Um, like, like Chris said, you're, you're not just writing yourself immediately out of the module, taking your one experience and going home. You always can do that. We're not going to force people to play, even if we could. Um, but there is a, there, it, it, because role playing is, is fundamentally shared storytelling, the players have to be willing to, 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 um, uh, accept the context that the GM or the module in our case provides. So uh, that gives us a starting point and the GM should uh, reciprocate by allowing the players flexibility in how they respond to the events that they, that they come across over the course of that module. Is an, another another great answer on um, a topic that I've spoken with a number of writers about, and is one that everyone's always trying to get right. Yeah, it's it's one of the biggest struggles I think that writers have when they write modules. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think it's even more challenging in a living campaign because in a home campaign, if um if I'm running something, my players go off the rails. I can adapt to it instantly, or say, let me take five minutes to figure this out and come back to it. But in the campaign, you have to put the tools out there and almost hope for the best. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes we hope for the worst. Um, <laughs> well, self bar it should be. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, it's 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 that idea of empowering the players. Um, 
them, making sure that they feel like they okay. There, there are limitations to what choices they they can make, but there's um, the reward for that is that there are some choices that you know they have they are they should be free to make. But those are the really memorable parts when um. Like in, in the card game, you would always have players that were able to point to fictions and say, this line here, I'm the one who made that happen. And again, in the, like our, when we go to a diner after a game day, people, uh, people still talk about things from HOR uh, two and three that they remember affecting on the campaign. Those are stories that stayed with them in some cases for decades. Mm-hmm. Well, over a decade anyway. So our last set of questions comes from Patrick Corrigan. His first question is, when looking through the different schools' advantages and disadvantages, what is the factors that earn them a spot on the restricted or banned list? Uh, there are a few factors. Um, uh, one of the examples, uh, sh- the, the easiest one that I, I would always call out is Shosuro Actor. Um, it it kind of hits all of my annoyances, which are... Uh, the first one is mechanical. Um, I am I am not personally a fan of schools that require a sidebar a sidebar uh, in order to function. Um, which, since you basically have to have that sidebar for social actors, sort of makes it a candidate. Um, but there's also the the how is this character going to fit in our campaign question, um, and in a lot of cases, especially with the schools, the answer is usually that it doesn't. Um, so, so some of its mechanics, um, some of it is how does it fit into the campaign? Uh, another big thing is logistics, uh, things like gentry, uh, things that we just, you know, we don't have time to make individual mechanics for everybody's gentries. Um, so, so the easier answer is to say, no, this isn't, this isn't a thing that you're going to be interacting with this campaign. Um, for me, it's how much additional work they make for the GM at the table. So all that stuff that adds an NPC to the table, I tend to want to shove off to the side. Your dependent disadvantages, your servant advantages, um, that sort of thing. Um, how likely are they are to trivialize the challenges that we're facing, uh, that the respective PCs to face, and as a result of that, how much more difficult you have to present to all of the other players at the table in order to successfully challenge that one particular player or PC. Uh, but most importantly, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about the kind of behaviors that the mechanics are going to um, re- reinforce or reward uh, because mechanics will drive player decisions. Um, and they're going to make choices based off of what's effective because that's absolutely reasonable when you're presenting um, when, you're, when you're using those rules to try to tell the story. Uh, so I want to look at what those rules are telling people to do um, before we put them in. And that's that's where Shisuro Actor really, uh, as Chris's example, really hits for, hits for me is because what, what the, the, those rules are telling the player to do is to not communicate with the rest of the table or to, um, more, more accurately, to lie to the rest of the table, which is just... It's not a good place to be. If you wouldn't mind walking through one other school that is on the list, uh, what about the Asako Henshin? And not arguing, but just like to hear the thought process on that one. Um, they would be an example of, uh, of trivializing challenges, uh, especially once you get into the higher ranks. That rank one uh, ability 
is um is even just in a vacuum kind of bonkers um and i i wanted to minimize the opportunity for there to be like one pc who lords above the rest um and basically says there's no reason for you to be here because i can handle all of these on all of these challenges on my own and they also fall into the category of requiring a sidebar to explain their rules i i understand it makes me sad because i love the i love the story behind the school but what you say Unf- makes a great deal of sense. Yeah, unfortunately, I've never seen a version of of that school that I am particularly fond of. Um, and it is one of the things I'm wondering if, you know, if FFG is going to try to do something with, interesting with it, or if they're going to, because so far, as far as I know, they haven't really mentioned the henshin. So I'm wondering if they're just saying no, the henshin weren't a thing. Um, I don't. They haven't talked about it a whole lot. Um, I know that Robert Denton, who's writing a lot of the Phoenix stuff now has been trying to flesh out a lot of the lore with the Shiba and the Asawa, as well as introducing a new a new Phoenix family. Yeah. Um, I want to say they are the Asako school in the core book. Um, um, I looked it over. I remember thinking specifically they had... Unfortunately, my core book is uh, far away. <laughs> not sure where we put ours. But anyway... Uh, Patrick's next question is, do you have the story of HR planned out, or is it something that is loose and players' choice help define it? Uh, I think you've talked quite a bit about this already, but if you want to talk a bit about the overall campaign uh, narrative. Uh, yes. Um, yes, is yeah. the easy... The, the mathematician's answer. Yes. It is both okay, cool. planned next out question. and is, is fairly loose and um, players' choices help define it. Just as a, a quick example, uh, in my original design document that I had created for the campaign uh everything with kazutora was going to be resolved uh back at gen con this last year and partially because players have a lot of attachment to him right now as a character um at least from what we've seen um and partially partially just because of how how the story has sort of gone with how the players have interacted with it things like that uh he's getting he's getting some extra life as it were um, so, so like there, there's a plan, uh, but as I've said before, uh, the, the plan, the plan changes. Well, the, the lion crab war wasn't particularly in the plans either. Um, it just came about in the moment and worked for the personalities of the NPCs. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid we didn't do a, uh, particularly stellar job of getting that across to the player base that that is what was going on but that's that's basically another example of the setting having its say all right and our final listener question lastly why was the spider why has the spider clan been retconned in the hr storyline was it simply due to the player choice and in other games or do they not fit into the setting you were looking to create in hr um so uh I think most people, most people who play know this, but for those who don't, HOR4 is a continuation of the timeline of HOR3. Um, and so part of, part of making that work was figuring out how the 200 years that take place between the end of what Corey wrote and the beginning of what I'm writing, um, part of, part of figuring that out, it was figuring out that interim. Um, and so, uh, this is a cool chance to do a little bit of history, uh, of the campaign, um, because there's no four winds arc in, in this timeline, 
Um, the Empire, the Empire during that time when Daigatsu is active, is much better prepared to deal with a threat like Daigatsu. Um, so, for example, you notice things like Oda Sunuchi is still around, is still the capital. Um, and while the Spider Clan may have been a footnote in history, it never has the large scale effect that it did on the original canon. Um, so, they, go ahead. They, they would never have been more than the Otokodate renegade, hidden, unofficial version that they started as when they started having uh, Shadowlands infiltrators in the Empire calling themselves the Spider Clan. Uh, they never got official recognition. Um, yeah. And, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Is it something that you ever see yourself doing anything with, or uh, is it just not part of what you're interested in for this particular campaign? It's not really in my design plans for this particular campaign. Um, it, I will admit to my biases. I was not a fan of the presentation of the Spider Clan that AEG uh, that AEG provided. Um, I think uh, I think it undercuts the credibility of the Empire. Uh, to to allow them to go legit, as it were, um, and and I didn't see a a particular uh, purpose behind having having that Dark Mirror Clan when the Scorpion already existed, so you already had that. Yeah, this it's definitely been a controversial topic among a lot of L five R players. Oh, oh um, yeah. For me, but. it's it's pr- primarily the history thing. Um, I'll go ahead and, and drop a little Easter egg here, something we've been open about, but we haven't really had an opportunity to discuss in, um, in setting much, is in HOR3, there, eventually there was the discovery of a ritual that could cleanse the taint because it could sever all ties to uh, other spirit realms, which the taint is the tie to Jigoku. Um, well, if it was enacted on someone who refuse to give up that tie, then it would banish them to whatever spirit realm. So um, when Daigotsu was captured in our history, that ritual was enacted upon him and he was banished to Jigoku where he promptly became the avatar of Jigoku and, as is established in canon, was capable of changing the way the taint works. So therefore, that ritual no longer works on on the taint of Jigoku in L5R. In in our version of the... um, um, in, in this in this in this timeline more specifically um, that's something we haven't really gone into much but it is certainly something that's part of the, the canon background you heard it here you heard it here first folks so that is the end of our listener questions thank you for taking the time to answer all of those uh, before we head out is there anything that you would like to plug um I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but I do want to go ahead and say it again. Uh, we are doing Weekend in Rokugan uh, in St. Louis from March 15th to 17th. Uh, as we get more details uh, ready for that, we will make sure to post them uh, on the Facebook group on the forums. Uh, as we always do, we will be doing a Kickstarter for that event. Um, we will have uh, three new modules uh, as well as an interactive uh, and it's a great chance to get to meet people in this community. Uh, so if you're listening, I hope I get to see you there. And the Kickstarter will start just after the first of the year. And we would encourage anyone uh, who hasn't yet had the chance to try Here's a Rokugan, uh, get online, try some of the modules. If you're in the area, go to these conventions. They are, they are an absolute blast. 
Yeah, again, the website for it is heroes-of-rokugan.net. Right. And with that, we are going to say goodbye. Thank you once again, Chris and Corey, for coming on and talking with us today. Thank, Thank you for having, having us. And Rokugan, stay classy. We'll see you soon.